with me to Isaiah chapter 8 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, we will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. We continue a very similar kind of theme from last week. Before we do that, however, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are reminded all the time that you are on every page, as we even heard about you this morning from the book of Job, as we will read about you in this book, in Isaiah. And so, Lord, we need help understanding that idea, because if we're honest, we think every page is about us. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to focus our attention on you, that you would help us to learn from you and about you and how we ought to live and how we ought to glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So read through this. Again, we have a similar kind of theme. We're going to have Ahaz again. And the idea about how he went to speak to the Assyrians, it kind of reminded me of one of my favorite fantasy trilogies, and you all know what that is, The Lord of the Rings. I haven't actually given a Lord of the Rings illustration in a long time. I checked, so I thought it was time. In The Lord of the Rings, of course, there's this all-powerful ring, and... The whole series is about destroying that one ring of power. The one ring is how they refer to it even. And it's and it's the idea of keeping that ring from this main enemy. Because if he could ever get the ring, it would be destruction for all good. It wouldn't be a good thing. There are several people, however, on the good side, good folks, who want to use the ring to their advantage. And that is a real tension throughout the story. Is it good to use something bad for good purposes? One of the characters, Boromir, finds this out the hard way. Out of a desire to do good, he ends up bringing harm upon the fellowship and almost defeats them very early in their journey because of his actions. In our text today, we have that same kind of tension, but after it's already happened. Remember Ahaz, he sought help from the enemy against another enemy. And the enemy that he went to was this all-powerful kind of enemy in in Assyria. He was being attacked by Israel. He was being attacked by Syria. And so he went to Assyria and said, please help me out. Well, what he found was that he had summoned a force that he couldn't possibly control. Like Boromir, he quickly discovered that he was dealing with things that were beyond his imagination. And those things were going to destroy him. Ahaz is a man. But now we deal with the idea that God himself is using something that is seemingly bad in order to accomplish his own purposes. Also, we are told that we should fear God in this passage that we're going to read today. That he will be a rock of offense. That he will be a stumbling block for people. These are hard sayings. This is hard. 
and they deserve a careful treatment. So we're going to look at those ideas and we're going to continue to look as we continue to look at this difficult period in the nation of Israel. Ultimately, it will point us forward to the most important event in history, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We celebrate his resurrection today with the church across the globe. But again, hopefully we're celebrating it every Sunday. This text, like all other texts, points us straight to that. And so, as we look at it, I want to consider main, three main ideas. The tools of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and then the signs of the Lord. And so with that, let's look at the text. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 8. Starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah, and to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flowed gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together. But it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that is that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among the disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king 
and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, and but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week, if you remember, we read about Ahaz and his decision to seek Assyria for help with his problem with Israel and Syria. Soon after this, just a few short years, they would run, Assyria would run through Israel and carry them off into exile. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. And again, I encourage you to read through the book of 2 Kings, particularly the last part of it as it details a lot of these events. And I think it's important for us to continue to have this backdrop as we go through the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read the first little part of chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And this is going to kind of show us the last part of the northern kingdom's history. The twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had, he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, and he had done as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried off the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halath and on Haber and the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel had, had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtowers to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars in the ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, which the Lord said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I have commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you, by my servants, but they would not listen, but they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Hosea, the final king of, is the final king of the northern kingdom, and his reign was pretty short as far as reigns of kings go, only nine years, and then for part of that year he was a vassal of Assyria, meaning he was basically paying them tribute to not come in and and wrecked the whole place. He stopped paying them, so they came in and they wrecked the whole place. 
they had a three-year siege. And I think a lot of times when we hear this word siege, we just kind of gloss over it. But a siege is basically nothing goes in, nothing comes out, and we're constantly bombarding the city. It would have been a horrible ordeal. Basically, you surrender because there's no one left or because everyone is starving to death. Not a good way to lose a war. Israel is taken over. Verses 21 through 23, I'll read quickly there in Second Kings 17 because this is kind of the outcome of all of that. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, king. And this is the first king of the northern kingdom when the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. There are no good kings in the northern kingdom. They were always bad. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Notice what happens here. The northern kingdom was ten of the tribe, ten of the original twelve tribes of Israel. And on that day that Assyria walked into Samaria and threw them out, the northern kingdom did not exist anymore. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel would become the lost tribes of Israel. God's people were now the lost tribes. We've read about quite a book of quite a bit of judgment in this book. We have to be careful because it gets really easy to see Israel as bad and then ourselves as good or even the U.S. as good. Make no mistake, the the Lord has a people for himself and it is very likely that many of those people were in the northern kingdom when it was exiled. There were many believers that were waiting on the Messiah that were living in the northern kingdom in those days. They are with him right now. But they endured that three-year siege. And that exile, and who knows what happened in those days as they were whisked away to these Assyrian lands. Jesus still had to come after this happened. It wasn't like all the sinners were dealt with in that day and then finally the real kingdom of God could come about. No, we still had to be born. And we prove that Jesus needs to still come. We're all idolaters. We all have trouble listening to the Lord. We live under the power of His resurrection today as believers. And we are guaranteed a place in glory because of the Holy Spirit. However, let us not forget that the Lord would still have us, His people, listen and obey. He's not outside of using something like Assyria to show us that. And that brings us to the first point, the tools of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tab- tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mehar Shalahashbaz, which is a nice long Hebrew name, I guess. It means something, though. It means speed to the spoil, hasten to the prey. It was a sign. You can imagine this sign that has common letters, meaning that others would have been able to understand it too. A sign to the incoming invaders, to those of Assyria, telling them, asking them, 
to speed to the spoil, hasten to the prey, hurry up and take us over, was the sign that the Lord told Isaiah to make. Not only that, he had him name his son that very same thing. Imagine having a child named, hurry up and take us over. But that's what the Lord did. He used the family of Isaiah as he had used the families of others, other prophets, to teach his people a lesson. He did it there in chapter 7 that we looked at last week. And he's doing it again here today. Notice this lines up very much with the prophecy that we read in chapter 7 concerning the child that was to be born, the things that were said of that child in chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7 it said that this child, or what would it say, that the things that would happen were going to take place before this child had come to an age of knowing right from wrong. Well, here in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, Before he knows how to cry mom or dad, Israel is going to be carried away. And that's exactly what happens. In the twelfth year of Ahaz's reign, Israel is destroyed. And now he's planning to do the same thing to Judah. Verses 5 through 8. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and resort, and they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread spread wings." will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Isaiah compares Assyria to the river, which would have been understood to be the river Euphrates in that day, the major river going through that part of the world, providing it with with uh, nutrients and water so that that part of the world could be farmed. And it flooded regularly, but this time it's going to flood all the way up to Judah and even up to the neck is what it says. It's basically symbolic of the fact that Judah is just barely going to escape Assyria. The only reason they do is because the Lord Himself intervenes and sends an angel to kill 185,000 soldiers in one evening. You would say that that would be called divine intervention. Indeed. Israel is saved because of the Lord's work, not because of their own. And notice the language at the end of verse 8. Isaiah refers to Judah by the name of Emmanuel, meaning God with us, this prophetic term that we saw in chapter 7. He ends verse 10 with the same thing. For God is with us, Emmanuel. He calls Judah, God is with us, and then he he reminds the nations that would come up against his people. God is with us. We've mentioned it several times, but it bears repeating, and this is going to be a very common theme throughout this book because of what is going on in the historical context in this book. The Lord uses whatever he wants to accomplish his redemptive tasks. And he is able to do that because he is the Lord. 
That's hard for us. But that's what he does. He uses Isaiah's family, for instance. You're going to call your son Maharshala Hashbaz, or you're going to call your son, hurry up and come take us over. That's difficult. He's going to use Isaiah's family to give a message to the people of that day. He's going to use the destruction of the ten tribes of Israel in order to persuade the other two, even though he knew they wouldn't turn either. He used an entire nation to come against his own people, only to shatter that nation when they got too close. 185,000 soldiers in one night. It's a lot of people. All gone. And the Lord called them to the gates of Jerusalem in the first place. He's going to raise up another nation. All pagans. All idolaters. To come up against his own. And now that nation is only an afterthought in history. Because again the Lord dealt with them. For attacking his people. He's going to use the barren wife of a doubting priest. And he's going to tell them to name their son John. And John is going to be used to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. He's going to be told to go out into the wilderness and wear camel skins. And to go up against the establishment of the day. Calling them out in no uncertain terms. He's going to go to the Virgin Mary, a child, and tell her that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. He used the Pharisees. He used the Jewish establishment. What was his purposes? To cause dissension and unrest that Jesus would be the center of, his only son. Why would he do that? So that... Jesus could be arrested. He's going to use the group's treasurer. Jesus is going to surround himself with a bunch of friends. And he's going to use one of those trusted friends to betray him for just a few bits of silver. He uses the Roman government to execute Jesus on the cross. And he's going to continue to use the Roman government to persecute his own people. And then he's going to see the Romans go away as well. Also, that prophecy could be fulfilled. Also, that his people could be saved. The Lord sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. All that he might be glorified, that his name might be high and lifted up. This is the same God that we worship today, brothers and sisters. He is God with us and in us as believers and with us right now as we are in this room. We don't have to wonder where our Savior is. He is with us forever and that will never stop. He is with us when all else is against us. We have enemies on this earth. We have difficulties here on this earth. But we know that He is with us. He uses us, His people today, to accomplish His purposes. Why? So that He might be glorified. So that His name might be praised. And a lot of people hear this and they think, 
What an arrogant God you serve. That sounds like God is really full of himself. To that I say yes. And he alone deserves to be. The reason that we have a problem with that is because we're full of ourselves. And we don't even deserve it. Yet, he is God with us anyway. And that brings to me to the next point, the fear of the Lord. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Isaiah and the prophets like him, many of the prophets in that day were often called conspirators with the enemy. You think about Isaiah's message. What is it? Hey, this nation's going to come and take you over. How do you know that, Isaiah? Are you conspiring with them? Jeremiah's message was, hey, this people, they're coming. They're here. Well, how do you know? Are you with them? Are you conspiring with them? They were oftentimes called that because they knew their enemy's plans. Well, they knew their enemy's plans because the Lord, of course, knew their enemy's plans. So here the instructions are, don't call conspiracy what other people's call conspiracy. And basically saying, believe the things that I'm saying. They're true because they're from the Lord. Don't fear what others fear. We could do an entire message on that one little phrase. Do not fear what others fear. Considering all the things that people fear. Think about the things that we fear today. They're the things that they feared in those days as well. Death, of course, is a big one. There's a lot in between birth and death. Losing health, possessions, losing reputation. All of the things that are wrapped up in that. All the small details of our lives that are associated with those big ideas. The people of Judah it was no different for them. They were fearing a bunch of things that essentially have no power. They were giving power to things that are nothing but worthless idols, just like we do today. Instead, what is the command here from the Lord? But the Lord of hosts, verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. If you do so, he will become a sanctuary. And what is a sanctuary? A holy, safe place for you. He will become a sanctuary, verse 14. And notice that he can become a sanctuary or a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to all the inhabitants of Israel. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall snare, be snared and taken. This is tough. But the New Testament oftentimes uses this imagery in reference to Jesus. One of the most notable times that I think of is after Jesus was born, his parents took him to the temple, and there was a man there who was waiting for the birth of the Messiah. He was told, you will not die until the Messiah comes. And he didn't. He was there. His name was Simeon. He was a priest, and he blessed Jesus 
And when he blessed Jesus, this is what he said. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed or a sign that is spoken against. For some, Jesus Christ will be a sanctuary. For others, he will be a stumbling block that they shatter against when they fall. And notice, and this is important for us, particularly as we consider our families, as we consider our loved ones, our friends, there's no middle ground. When someone says to you, I think Jesus is great for you, but I don't really want anything to do with that sort of thing. I think that whole Christian thing is really cool. I think you guys do some nice things, but that's just not how I live my life. I'm not really a church person. There's no middle ground here. Jesus Christ is either your sanctuary or he is that stumbling block that you will shatter against. Everyone will have something to do with Jesus, whether they want to or not. Or to phrase it better, he will have something to do with everyone. He's either preparing a place for you, or he's going to look at you and say, away from me, I never knew you. As Christians, we cannot afford to fear what other people fear. Just think of some of the most important things. We can't afford to be so concerned with money that we are consumed by it, that it takes our every moment. We can't afford that. We don't have the time. We don't have the time to think about our reputation or our possessions. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord has risen. He is right now at the right hand of the Father. And He said, I am coming again. Be ready. Are we ready? We'll either rest in Him or we'll be destroyed by Him. So will everyone else. That goes for all the people that we know as well. So what are we doing? Are we about kingdom business? You can always tell what a person is about by what they fear. So it's a good question. What do you fear? Something that we should ask ourselves regularly. And that brings me to the last point, the signs of the Lord. This last section of Isaiah 8 a lot of that we've already talked about deals with the signs that the Lord is sending. First of all, He's sending the, the testimony of Isaiah. He's sending His own children, Isaiah's own children, as a sign. Though the people have direct words from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, they're still looking to other things. Verse 19, and they will, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. And just can you imagine? There they have these prophets that are among them, and yet they turn to these spiritualists to tell them things. They hear what they want. They curse God when they don't. As you see there at the last part of that chapter. They're greatly distressed when hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, meaning they're going to curse their God. The one that provided them water from the river Shiloh that ran under the city. They turned up their faces at him and cursed them. 
This is no different in Jesus' day. For Jesus, he would have many signs as he came to earth, as he did the many signs among the people. Some people saw those signs and believed. Some people saw those signs and hated Jesus even more. And they rejected him even more. They still would not believe. Reminds me of Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which I've quoted several times. The rich man just wants someone to tell his friends he's in hell. And he wants to tell, please, just go tell my friends. And then they'll believe, I promise, they'll get it this time. And what does Abram, who's in the parable, what does he say? They have Moses and the prophets. They should, he, they should hear him. They won't be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. That's exactly what happened, is it not? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold... There was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know, what you, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you shall see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Someone did raise from the dead, and many believed. We're proof of that this Sunday. We celebrate this every Sunday, that someone did raise from the dead. But even on this day that Jesus was risen from the dead, those soldiers saw it, and they trembled. They became like dead men. Even though there were many that saw it and knew it and knew that it happened, that day they were trying to cover up His resurrection. Verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These were the guards that saw what happened. They knew Jesus wasn't there anymore. They knew He was there because they put Him there. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him to keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Just talk with an unbeliever. They'll tell you why they don't believe the resurrection. Well, yeah, Jesus probably lived, but his disciples, you know, they just took him in the middle of the night. 
This is the same story that they've been telling since then. They've been trying to cover up the resurrection since the day it happened. Why? Because if it's true, I can't do whatever I want to do. If it's true, I have to do whatever He wants me to do. And if I choose not to, I'm in trouble. If the resurrection is true, everything changes. And it did change. Just keep reading. It did change. What did Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? Go into the world and make disciples. And that's exactly what they did. And nothing has been the same since then. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Therefore, the world should see the signs, should they not? Those, us, who were once enemies are now called friends of Jesus. We live with hope. We love one another. We love our enemies, or we should. The signs to the world around us should be so blinding that everyone should reach out and call upon the name of Jesus, but they won't. They wouldn't believe even if a man were to raise from the dead. But we know that some will believe. So we continue to preach this message. We continue to live in a world that has no hope. And we continue to live as if there is hope because there is. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is our hope. And so in conclusion, because of this, let let us honor him as holy. Let us fear him with a holy fear. Let us bring glory to his name, that his name would be high and lifted up. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray to you because you are right now at the right hand of the Father. You are not in some tomb in Israel. You are able to listen because you are alive. And because you are alive, we have hope forevermore. So Lord, we pray that you help us to share that hope with a dying world that is dying more and more every day. Lord, help us. Lord, we pray that those who are yours, that have not yet come into this fold, that you would open their hearts and their minds and their ears, that they would hear, use us, your people, this church, Redeemer community, to preach the gospel to them, that they may be saved, that you alone might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.